Welcome to AUHSD Future Talks. I'm your host, Superintendent Michael Matsuda from the Anaheim Union High School District. And Future Talks is dedicated to the future, which is right now, what does the post-COVID-19 world look like, especially for our young people in terms of jobs, access to jobs, uh, workforce pathways. And uh, we know that we cannot address this without several important partnerships partnerships from higher education, from business, and from nonprofits. And we're so blessed to have uh, people and organizations that really care. And as our audience knows, one of our, our biggest partners is uh, UC Irvine. And specifically, we're lucky to have our next guest, Dr. Bernadette Bowden-Abala, who is the director and founding dean of the program in public health in the Susan and Henry Samueli College of Health Sciences at UC Irvine. She is also a professor of population health and disease prevention and epidemiology. She brings an amazing world-class experience working with UNICEF and the United uh, Nations and developing curriculum in public health. And as we know, in this COVID world, we are dealing with this uh, horrific pandemic with in uh, a lot of uncharted waters. So we are so blessed to have a person of her expertise and knowledge leading a program uh, with one of our major partners. And we've been very lucky to have uh, Bernadette as alongside us and um, many of the professors that she brings along to, uh, to help us navigate this pandemic. So welcome uh, Bernadette Dean Bowden Abala to uh, our show. Thanks so much, Mike. It's really my pleasure to be here. And uh, I have to say, it's been such a pleasure working um, with the school district, working with you um, on all of these partnerships that really began almost at the same time that COVID began. And I haven't been here that long. I haven't been here that long before that. So um, it's been, it's, you know, COVID's a terrible disease, but it has been a wonderful ride working with you. Well, you know, and you've been brought aboard to um, try to build um, a, a program into a school. Can you help us understand that? And really what was the reason why, because I'm sure someone of your stature had many options, uh, why coming to UCI in Orange County? You know, so I had never left New York before. I was at Columbia. I was at NYU. I was at, at Mount Sinai. And as I moved from one institution to another institution, um, I built things. And I think that's what I do. I think I build. Um, and so I was really intrigued when the opportunity came my way to come out to, um, to California. It wasn't even on my bucket list to come out to California, um, to come out to UCI. You know, one of the interesting things um, in New York was that I was always at private institutions. And public health is not really a discipline where people graduate and make a lot of money. They you know, they brought in their uh, horizons and um, they, they, you know, feed their soul with good things because that's what public health really tries to do is to try to, um, you know, enhance the health and well-being of the community. But, um, but one of the things that really enticed me about coming out to uh, UCI was that it was this wonderful public institution. And that meant that we were able to offer, um, you know, world-class public health education 
um, to everyone. And again, our, our um, and, and so so we were we are a program. We are moving now to a school. Um, one of the exciting things about our program is that we have about thirteen hundred undergraduates. We're one of the largest wow. and earliest undergraduate programs um, in the country, and um, it's extremely diverse. About sixty percent of our students are first generation or low income, and they're going to go back. They're they're really committed to serving their communities. They're going to graduate. They're going to go back into their communities. And uh, we want to make sure, I was, again, intrigued to really make sure that we supported these students in their education so that they could go out and really serve the communities. Um, I was intrigued with Orange County. It's an extremely diverse community. And most of my own research is in um, the reduction of disparities. And so um, this was a great fit for a, a lot of the work um, that I did. And, um, and you know, the, the chance to take what was already a really excellent program and to build it, to really broaden the disciplines within public health that we could bring to students to be able to get them not only to have a really solid undergraduate education, but to really expand our master's of public health, which is a terminal degree and there's tons of people with this MPH that are leading programs, not just locally and nationally, but, but really globally as well. And so to really be able to bring that to these students and, of course, our doctoral program, we really want to enhance and grow that. Um, and so that folks that really want to do research in public health um, will have access to that, again, at, at, you know, really one of the finest public universities in the country. Absolutely. I, one of the things that um, brought us together um, was the battle against COVID early in, uh, in June. And I remember when I first met you, uh, this amazing researcher and leader in public health, but um, like me, you are a teacher at heart and COVID-19 is uh, a very big teachable moment for all of us. And right away, you you said, look, we are there for you and we want to train up this. We were lear I was learning all new vocabulary words such as contact tracing and uh, contact tracers and uh, UCI's uh, uh, program in public health stepped up to train our, uh, with the partnership with Latino Health Access, train many of our uh, adults, our, our parents uh, called uh, promotores. Now, that was another new vocabulary word for me. Can you share what that word means and uh, why is that such an important uh, word in terms of cultural competence in this area? So, so health promotores, um, they are they're folks that are really promoting health. And the most important thing is that they're actually from the community, within the community. It used to be that people thought that you could just, that, that public health practitioners could just go into communities and make changes and then leave. And then that would be it. The community would be healthier and, and better for it. And I think that that was really, um, you know, those were all well-intentioned, but the truth is that the health of the community, whilst need, while it needs to be supported by public health and public health knowledge and strategies, is the communities to have and to um, to manage. And so health promotoras 
um, are, is one way to have community members um, really invested, empowered in their health. And these are folks that um, that we're that we train that help us to um, translate some of the knowledge that we have about what works and what doesn't and help and, and give us feedback so that together we can get into communities and we can really make a difference and that that the difference is sustainable because again the community embraces it and we have people like health promotores you know supporting that change um, for the betterment for health and so, I, yeah go on the promotores were our lay people right yeah. Yes, they are white people from the community who understand the community. I mean, so you mentioned before some of the work that um, that we had done in um, with the World Health Organization, um, with the World Food Organization, with UNICEF. And so we were involved, for example, um, in the Ebola epidemic, which was really dreadful, of 2014. And it was only when um, when community was brought in and not just told, oh, you know, nobody can speak to each other. No one can see each other. Everyone has to, you know, isolate. It was only when community was brought in and that that the health experts and the military and the government began to understand the values that people placed in different activities within the community. It was only after having community voice in a participatory process that interventions were created that everybody could live with. And that's how we do, that's how we did, um, you know, that's how we were able to really intervene in Ebola and, and you know, turn it around and basically get rid of that terrible disease. And so health promotores, they're interpreters, if you will, of both science into community, but community to science. So, and I think the, 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 the biggest thing that they bring is that, like you said, bridging right. um, the science with the community, but it's really about trust, isn't it? Oh, it's totally about trust, totally. And um, I have to say that's one thing that um, I'm I'm extremely grateful for is that we were able to establish the program in public health at UCI, the school district, Latino Health Access, the cities of Anaheim and Santa Ana, real trust with each other early because it takes a long time to have communities trust you. And so having health promotorists and working with them and, and really trying to do things together and 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 understanding that people are not just going to desert you. That's what trust is all about. So, so Bernadette, another vocabulary word that I've learned a little bit about, it's this term called comorbidity. Yes. And, you know, when they say that COVID-19 has laid bare a lot of the inequities out there, could you help our audience understand, like, what, again, in lay terms, what does that mean, comorbidity? So comorbidities mean that you have other underlying um, health factors, okay, that um, could contribute to or exacerbate, make worse the condition. And we're talking about COVID, right? So comorbidities of COVID mean that if you have 
asthma, if you have hypertension or high blood pressure, if you are overweight or obese, if you have these kinds of conditions that, um, and you get COVID, that, um, that you are likely to do worse, that your outcomes are, uh, are, are going to be poorer unless we can get you and, and get you in and really try to be very aggressive. Um, and so you, I was just say, Michael, you mentioned co, you mentioned both comorbidities and race ethnic disparities. And so I, I was just going to say that it gets very tricky, um, with COVID because a couple of things are happening. First, there are what we call social determinants of health. Um, which are structural issues that influence um, health and that in, that certainly influenced COVID, the, the ability to get COVID or your exposure to COVID, and then um, your likelihood of poorer prognosis, all right, or, or worse outcomes, and then combine that with comorbidities. So we know that in the United States, the Latinx populations are more likely to have something called a comorbidity called metabolic syndrome. And that means that um, those populations may be more obese, as I talked about, have diabetes or high blood sugar levels or blood glucose levels and have hypertension. So they have a higher rate already. Then they get exposed to COVID. And part of the exposure to COVID is because of these social determinants of health, right? So a lot of uh, the Latino um, population was also the essential worker population that had to be at the grocery store, that had to be in the um, the hospital in, you know, working to support the healthcare system. And so by doing that, the very people with the comorbidities, which would make their exposure to COVID worse, were more likely to be exposed because of these social determinants of health. And it's sort of the perfect storm in a terrible way. So this is why by July, we saw this tremendous spike in Anaheim, Santa Ana, where these uh, perfect storm collided, right? Exactly. So, so exactly. what you're talking is about a, a pre-existing condition for these communities. Right. Um, what what can be done? I mean, post COVID, because that those exist those pre existing issues are still going to be with us, right? And that's a serious long term problem. Right. What what are some of the things that you think um, need to be done to um, to change that pre existing and address that pre existing condition in these communities? Yeah. So I think that we have to tackle both issues: the comorbidities and the social determinants of health. Ultimately, if we can change the structure within which people live and work and function to create health equity, okay, that's that's a big way because that would have then equalized exposure. And so less people would have been exposed to COVID because we would have had masks um, earlier on. We would have um, had policies that would have helped to regulate you know how protected the essential worker was though and those the, the you know trying to address social determinants of health is very difficult because it's not just you know I'll give you a medication and you'll feel better it's about it's about the political structure um it's about 
um, the economy. It's really very complicated, but we can work towards that. We can come up with policies, for example, when we tell everyone to shelter in place that have um, that that really have caveats for people that can't shelter in place, right? So, so those are things we can work on in the social determinants of health. Um, and in terms of co- these comorbidities, you know, we've been working on these comorbidities for a while. So a lot of my work prior to COVID was in chronic disease, cardiovascular disease and stroke. Um, And so, and we were kind of yelling to the world, look at these bad, look at these disparities. If you were African-American, if you were Latino, you were much more likely to have a stroke than if you were white. And why is that? And so again, some of it's the social determinants of health and others are these pre-existing conditions, which probably are related, again, to social determinants of health, but to getting to people early and um, to sort of to changing and making people healthier earlier, working with families, something that I think is critically important that we reduce risk for, for grandma. Well, but- this is why possibly the uh, partnership with UCI and other nonprofits to develop right. the community gardens, right? Exactly. Community gardens is a way in which we can help transform neighborhoods. Help transform neighborhoods and help to think about living better, living healthier, but in a very culturally and traditional way. Absolutely. So we look forward to that partnership with uh, UCI uh, program in public health. Um, I'm going to switch over uh, to what's uh, people now are talking about the vaccine yeah. and logistics behind it. Could you uh, explain a little bit about what are the challenges going forward and uh, that you see logistically with um, the vaccine? Because some people are saying that this could take a long time. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of challenges. So I think the first biggest challenge is, you know, do we, are we going to be able to make enough vaccine to cover everyone? So that's the first challenge. And, and, you know, there, you know, I think that everyone's trying to meet that challenge. The second challenge is identifying and um, dispensing the vaccine to the highest risk groups first, right? So high risk groups, and I sit on the vaccine task force for um, for Orange County, high risk groups include people with comorbidities who have high exposure. So, so healthcare workers with comorbidities. We also saw a terrible um, COVID really, um, you know, uh, in nursing homes. And so that, that sort of residential nursing home population would be one of the first groups. And so it goes from there, sort of sickest, most at high risk to, to the group that gets this, the, the population that gets COVID, you know, in a, in a, in a, well, in a better way, if you will, not as many symptoms, um, you know, not as sick, which really are children and young adults, although children and young adults have gotten sick, but not at the same rate. And so one is just then, how do we then think about um, dispensing the vaccine? And one of the other challenges with this particular vaccine is it's not one dose, it's two doses, at least that's the early vaccines they're talking about. And that means having to come back twice, not once. So think about the logistics of this. For Orange County, 
3.2 million people trying to assess which risk group people are in, trying to get them to come in and then come in twice within a month. We don't know a lot of things. We don't know how long the vaccine lasts. So is it going to be a year? Are we going to get we have to get revaccinated? So all of these things are still up in the air. But we know that that right now, Pfizer, for example, is reporting very high rates of success. Okay. Um, but the other really important thing to talk about is this concept of vaccine hesitancy. Why is it that people don't get vaccinated? We know that for influenza vaccine, for example, 50% of a population may not get vaccinated. Um, and, um, And there are a lot of reasons. And this comes back to community. It comes back to culture. It comes back to um, individuals evaluating the risk benefit to them um, of getting the vaccine. And, you know, we think, well, of course, the, the risk is low and the benefit is that you won't get COVID. But there's really a lot of things, including some social determinants of health issues that people think about, right? Where am I going to get the vaccine? Will I have to take the day off? If I take the day off, will I still have a job? For example, um, there's a lot of discussion back and forth in California, especially. But also- so, I, have a, I have a question. So you said the two, you have to take one shot and a booster. It doesn't yeah. take effect until after that booster. Oh, so the effect is small. And so okay. you really need that second booster. That's right. Okay. And, and also I've heard it, it has to be delivered frozen too. And that's going to be another challenge. It has to be delivered at minus 80. And that is a huge challenge. The The good news is I think partnering with places like UCI, the, the county and the county will have some freezers as well. You know, in the science world, we we're dealing with minus 80 degree, you know, storage capacity in major universities. So that's actually a good point about the, uh, large number of hesitancy and you contrast that with the numbers we need in terms of um, the herd immunity what is that number of herd immunity so so what so so the number people are talking about for herd immunity is about 60 to 70 percent of the population but you have 50 percent who may not want to take it off the top Right. So so you either you've had it. If you've had COVID, we believe you have at least um, some herd, some immunity. Right. And so you so we now we've reported maybe 17 percent in Latinx populations have some antibody coverage, which is high. Um, 12 percent in Orange County overall. So you'd need to take that number. Then you add the the number of people getting vaccines, and you're you're right, Mike. You you're like you're really barely at what herd immunity would be, and so we still get um, we still may be vulnerable um, because we don't if we don't get a large enough population um, getting vaccine, then we really won't achieve herd immunity. So I'm going to shift again uh, in the last few minutes that we have, Bernadette. This show is about jobs for youth. What advice uh, do you, we we have 30,000 young people and their parents uh, in our district. What advice do you want to give to young people about jobs and especially like in uh, an area like healthcare? Yeah. So first, I think that healthcare is here to stay in terms of the job market. And there are many, I, I would say you want to explore 
all of the different aspects of healthcare. I mean, if you take COVID as an example, right? We, you've heard epidemiologists like myself, people that are looking at numbers, if you like numbers, and trying to understand how the disease moves about. You, we're talking about people who go out there and, and go into communities and try to promote health. We're talking about social workers because it's very hard to be isolated uh, for long periods of time. So educators and social workers and public health professionals and, of course, the traditional nursing and nursing aides and, um, and physicians, clinicians. So there's a huge, huge job market. And, you know, it really depends upon where you want to end your learning um, and your formal learning if you want to you know finish with a bachelor's degree and um, you know you could you could go and do contact tracing you could certainly work for a department of health at a master's degree level you could be running programs at a PhD level you could be in a university setting and you could be doing some of the research I think two really important things um, one is whatever you decide to do you should have passion. And you should really love not only health overall, but the area that you are interested in and talk to people who do that and, and kind of get a sense, you know, um, if you can go and, um, you know, um, spend the day or two days or three days with them just to get a sense of what they do and what their life is like. Um, healthcare is all about evidence and science. And, and no matter what you decide, you think you want to do health now and then later on you don't, learn science, appreciate science, and be able to defend science because this entire epidemic was all about questioning some key issues with science. And we weren't able to get together and strategize and keep our country, keep our communities as safe as we could have, because people questioned a lot about science. And so I say, learn it and be passionate about science and really be able to defend it. Well, that's awesome uh, advice. I, you know, we've uh, been very fortunate to have people, um, from the corporate side as well, talk about uh, these same issues. Um, and I'm hearing uh, one of the foundational pieces, which is uh, in terms of uh, preparation for this world is data analytics. And yes. we've had a number of people talk, um, in fact, we had the, um, the Dean of the School of Education talk about the importance of sort of cultural competency as well. And um, these are kind of big, uh, big issues in education. Could, do you mind commenting on the importance of those issues as well? Yeah, well, so, so I think cultural competence is critically important, understanding that everybody has a different worldview and that communities have different worldviews. And so we can't move forward without understanding and appreciating and integrating each you know, each sort of cultural value system into the way that we do things like design interventions, okay, to promote health and well-being for communities. So that's one thing. The opposite end of that is data analytics and big data. We collect data in so many ways 
from our phones to the computer to electronic health records. And that gives us some sense of how we behave, what our health is, again, what our values are. And so by learning how to look at big data and asking the right questions, we may really be able to come up with strategies that, again, lead to enhanced health and wellness for everyone. Well, Bernadette, this has been a very quick 20 minutes. And I want on behalf of our 30,000 young people and in, uh, in their futures and um, their families, I want to thank you so much for this partnership, both personal and institutional. Thank you so much. And we look forward to hearing more of the great work that you're doing. Thank you as well. Thank you.